This is episode eight with Ellie Nitschke. Ellie became a leadership expert, a podcast and radio show host, and upcoming author, all while raising four young children. Welcome to the Wild Ones with Cam Miller podcast. I'm your host, Cam Miller, and I'm a coach, lifestyle entrepreneur, and founder of what has twice been the UK Babywear brand of the year. For the last few years, I've been supporting people around the globe to reconnect with the wild, innate strength within themselves so that they can rapidly realize their goals and build incredible lives. The purpose of the Wild Ones podcast is to connect those creating wild, free, incredible lives and to share the knowledge, tools, and skills we need to spend more of our time doing the things we love with the people we love when we like. If you're inspired by this podcast episode, subscribe to the podcast and head over to cam-miller.com where you can check out and sign up for my free weekly growth guide email. It works hand in hand with the podcast to provide you with a steady stream of motivation, knowledge and practices to fuel and guide your own wild, free, incredible journey through life. In this episode, I'm talking with Ellie Nitschke. Ellie was a national ballet dancer before embarking on a thriving career in finance. Eventual burnout led her to change tack and work for the government for a time before striking out on her own as a leadership expert or while raising four young children. Along the way, Ellie started the Made For More podcast and became host of the Overwhelmed to Owning It radio show. And she's now set to launch her first book, Rise of the Courageous Leader. If you'd like to learn how to thrive in entrepreneurship while raising young children, or if you'd like to learn how to use courageous leadership to take your career or your organization to the next level, then this episode is for you. Ellie, welcome. It's great to have you on the show. Thank you. I am very excited to be here. So thanks for having me. No, it's an absolute pleasure. Yeah, a lot of people get their... um, Early on, before they start their careers, it's either performance in in sports or the creative arts um, that they really develop a lot professionally as well as in school. And and yourself, you were a ballet dancer at a national level. Is that right? Could you talk us through a little bit your journey there and perhaps the sort of skills and things that you learned which have helped you in your career? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, You're right. I was a ballet dancer. In fact, my career, I started uh, as a professional ballet dancer was my sort of first paid gig outside of school but my I guess my journey through ballet and the world of performing arts started very very young I was about three maybe four uh, very very tiny and uh, I was actually sent to uh, a place called fun and games because my coordination <laughs> was lacking uh, at that age and uh, they suggested uh, the organizers of fun and games which was essentially you know step your left foot step your right foot step your left foot uh, which I couldn't do suggested that I uh, sign up or my mum signs me up to ballet and that sort of started I guess you know at such a young age and so many girls at age three boys as well uh, will start ballet and leave it but for whatever reason I loved it even from that very young age I've got so many fond memories of that time and yeah. as you know as as what happens at a ballet studio is you progress through the levels uh, you do exams you do performances it's a lot of 
work dedication. It's one of those things that it's not seasonal. You work, um, you attend classes during the school terms. And I did that continually, as in would show up every week, multiple times a week until I was pregnant with my second baby when I was 30. So for many, many years, I uh, ballet has been yep. such a huge part of my life. But uh you know, loved it so much in school. It took up a lot of time, so I didn't have heaps of time for study in school. And now when I look back, I think, well, that's because I was, you know, training like an elite athlete. Mm-hmm. Um, but you never really think of ballet in that way. And yep. uh, when I finished school, decided that I would, uh, you know, join the circus essentially, but start studying full-time dance, which was about 60 hours a week of uh, physical activity, <laughs> dance, learning all different modalities of dance as well here in Adelaide, uh, which I absolutely loved. And then next natural progression from there was to uh, join a company, which I did so professionally danced in a a dance company. And then funding got cut for that. So I cut my career, career, uh, ballet career quite short. Well, maybe it was probably long in in reflection, but it is interesting now doing the work that I do, uh, having a look at all of those skills that have happened or that I acquired over time that I didn't really know, you know, probably absorbing via osmosis uh, that, you know, you use in leadership, which is what, what where I work, and uh, even just tenacity and uh, doing hard work and repeating things yeah. and testing and failing and pushing to your limits. You know, there is so much uh, that the ballet world or the ballet discipline taught me that I use now. Yeah, I guess it's, a, I'm not sure if the, the right term, it's cross-functional skills or, or something like that. But I think <laughs> you're exactly right. To me, ballet, I was just thinking about it earlier. It's Part of me was like, well, is it, it's a bit like a sport, isn't it? You know, they've got these amazing physical bodies and doing all these amazing physical feats. But then it's like, well, it's, no, it's performance, creative arts, all of these sort of things. And then, you know, in many respects, as you were saying, very much a career you know it's about um getting in with a company and it's also about making a living in that so for yourself what you know at what point did you start transitioning out of ballet into into a different type of career or or maybe a a more normal career path let's say Mm. yeah that's a really good question so uh i you know did ballet all through school um competed at national level the next step for me was to study full-time dance, which I did. And then once I finished that study, joined the company. And here in Adelaide, uh, a lot of, there was a lot of arts funding around at the time. Then there was a change in government and arts funding was cut. So literally overnight, our company uh, had no funding. So I uh, lived in a country town and got up the next day and was like, what am I going to do? I need to find a job. Walked down the main street of my local town, went you know, into each of the stores and asked for a job. And I actually walked into my local credit union and asked for a job. I'd been there, you know, been a, a customer there for years and years, knew some of the people from the community, uh, you know, walked in on a Friday. They said, yep, started work on a Monday back in those uh, simpler times. And I guess that really kicked off my career in banking and finance, yeah. which is where I started in the in the corporate world. Uh, and I loved it. I know your background's in um, finance as well. So it was very different from, you know, days of sweats and leotards and, uh, you know, pushing my body to its limits to, um, you know, counting money and, and, and sales and, and working in a professional environment with a whole bunch of adults. Um but, you know, because I love competition, thanks to, you know, all those years of dancing, uh, I loved, you know, being at the yep. top of my game, seeing where I could push things. 
I actually ended up uh, doing quite well in banking and finance. And as is the way, when you're doing well, you get promoted. And I was continually promoted and promoted. And it was pretty fun being Ali back in yep. those in her early 20s. And uh, before too long, I was handed some keys to go and open up the branch. So it was an office in the city, recruit my own team, which was, you know, pretty sensational to be able to do. I recruited an amazing very, uh, very young team at the time. We we're in the city, so had a lot of fun nights, uh, but recruited an amazing high energy team of professionals uh, that, that all performed really well. We all got along really well. Uh, so well, in fact, I actually ended up marrying one of them. So he's been my husband now for 10 years. So I do like to joke <laughs> that, um, you know, every six months we have this performance Fantastic. review period, but no, definitely, uh, definitely my best hire to date. I'll keep him around, I think, is. Um, He's doing pretty well. Uh, and then around that same time when, you know, my team was going really well in this new office is when the GFC hit. And uh, as you know, GFC, not a great place to be working um, banking and finance. So my office had heavy overheads with the city location. Uh, our, our office got closed. And because the team yep. was performing so well, they were all promoted I uh, was promoted as well to another uh, another team, and that's probably when my real, the tough leadership stuff um, started to kick in. So I essentially was gotcha. brought in to um, fix a toxic environment and uh, walked into a wall, metaphorical, perhaps even yep. physical wall, of about 14 women who were very unhappy <laughs> with um, the work that they were doing they hated their jobs, they hated each other, they hated their old boss, and they were pretty unimpressed to see me, um, you know, traipsing in there, guns are blazing, ready to conquer the world and fix the fix the environment yeah. that they were in. Um, so, yeah, definitely a baptism of fire when it turns out that, you know, it was easy leading a team of young people and I was dating one of them and, you know, we had a really good rapport um, and great relationship. Very, very different to lead a team when they don't really like you very much. So I uh, had a rapid, I guess, a rapid experience yeah. and a rapid growth period of learning what it meant to build rapport, lead when people hated your guts, um, you know, have, you know, probably where I learned a lot of the foundations of courageous conversations, had to have a lot of those. And uh, it didn't take too long to turn around, but it did take a lot of effort yeah. on my behalf had to have quite a bit of self-reflection on uh, the roles that I was playing and my capabilities. I got a coach um, to help me with my leadership skills and how to, you know, engage with a team of, uh, of 14 women who hated my guts. So, yeah, that's probably where it, nearly where it ended. But, yeah, that's where the, the good part happened. Yeah, interesting. So it sounds like with your career there were, you know, a number of cases you found you were quite lucky, you know, to find um, things that you really enjoyed and you performed well in. And there's some research by one of the founding fathers of positive psychology, uh, Mahali Csikszentmihalyi, which often shows that peak performance and peak enjoyment in many cases are, are one and the same thing. And when you can you can get both of those two sort of firing together, you'll you realize your sort of your best performance and your best enjoyment in, in your different careers in that. But then you you found yourself, um, I guess, you know, leadership. As you said, you you know it's quite easy to lead a you know a team in a in a really positive environment where everybody's winning and everything's going great, I guess. But as you said, you really um, you really learn, I guess, that good leadership principles and skills, etc. When you're when you're up against the wall, and could you could you explain a little bit what um, 
perhaps what led this team into that kind of position and then sort of some of the specific things that you did to kind of, uh, I guess, improve it? Yeah. So in terms of what led the team there, I think it was a combination of um, just not being listened to by their previous leader. They probably didn't have a lot of support. Um, I actually don't know too much about what happened before I got there. It was one of Mm -hmm. those teams or one of the locations that was kind of on the outer skirts, lower socioeconomic area um, and had, you know, had some rough clientele, had some, had some difficulties in scheduling, had some, you know, dare I say it, difficult personalities, and they just hadn't had the opportunity or anyone to role model what it looked like to be a high-performing team and a high-functioning team. Uh, When I went in there and, you know, I can laugh about it now, it wasn't funny at the time though, Uh, you know, I went in there thinking that I could just, you know, blueprint what I'd done in the past and uh, it came crashing down in a pretty big way and had to have quite a bit of conflict there was a lot of tears. There was a lot of um, slammed doors. It was it was a rough, rough yep. gig uh, as my you know baptism of fire. But you know one of the first things that I implemented, and it's it's interesting looking back on it now, is because there was so much conflict. I was like, you know what, these guys just need um, need to kind of show that they do actually care about each other. That there, there is some amazing talent within this team, and I started yep. this thing called the warm fuzzy jar. And uh, where I got people to, or the team, the girls, to write, you know, something positive about someone else. And now I look back on it and I'm like, oh, it was gratitude. That's what we were doing. But I, you know, very maturely called it the warm fuzzy jar. And in our team meetings, I'd be like, okay, we're going to read out our warm fuzzies now. You've got no choice, but this is what we're doing. Um, And I remember, I distinctly remember that meeting. So we used to have it on a Tuesday morning. Distinctly remember that meeting reading out. So I read out the anonymous gratitude warm fuzzies about someone else and you could almost just see the um the girls looking around at each other and being like who wrote that about me like that was really kind and it's almost as though I I know you're familiar (laughs) with Brene Brown's work um the the armor started to fall down around them or start you know there was a bit of chink happening in the armor and that's really what started that catalyst around you know practicing gratitude didn't know that's what it was at the time um, but really focusing on the behaviour that we wanted to or that I wanted yeah. to start getting repeated. So all of those compliments. Um, and then what did I do next? Just uh, had a lot of one-on-one conversations, finding out what motivated them, what their bugbears yeah. were, where they actually wanted in terms of succession planning. None of that had really happened uh, previously. And then developing a way yep. uh, and a plan together on how we can start implementing it. Yet, you know, some things we can't do for another six to 12 months. Other things we can change straight away. Yep. Um, some of those things like rostering, you know, there, there was a lot of I yeah, guess, nice. conflict around rostering, people getting the, shit, the shit, uh, shifts and people getting the good shifts and how can we make it really fair um, and rotating people around. So, yeah. Yeah, good question. I reckon showing that fairness and finding out what how people no, I really, uh, what drove people was key. Yeah, gotcha. And gratitude and yeah, I guess, you know, in in terms of courageous conversations, getting getting the dialogue up um, in terms of quantity, but also in terms of quality, I guess, where that where that dialogue uh, is focusing. I just I just experienced this funny in a quite an unrelated area over the course the last few days I was on I was on holiday and I was uh I was surfing um and you often go out and you know when you're you're out in a crowd and it's quite it's quite busy etc 
um, and, you know, you're competing with people for waves. There can be kind of light level conflict. <laughs> um, you can yeah. kind of build up almost an enmity towards other people, other people towards you. And I often find that um, when that's developing, obviously that takes away from your enjoyment of your surfing session, experiencing the waves, having a good time, having fun, etc. I often find as soon as you have a, a conversation with um, one of these people, um, that it just disarms everybody, that everybody has this kind of idea of who this person is and why they're taking my wave, all of this sort of stuff. But once you realize yeah. they're a human being and they're just out there to have a good time as well, um, I found that just simple little conversations, and I guess, you know, you're right, it's, it's courageous because sometimes, you know, you know, even speaking to new people, sometimes that requires a little bit of courage, particularly if you, you feel maybe you're not getting along with somebody. But is, is, that a, is that a key idea behind the courageous element of it? Um, could, you, could you sort of unpack that a little bit more? Yeah. So courageous conversations, totally my jam. Love it. I think we don't do enough of this hmm. leaning into um, tough conversations. And I read an absolutely astonishing statistic the other day that we avoid a tough conversation every seven minutes. This is in the workplace every seven minutes, which results in $104 billion wow. in lost productivity, which is just nuts, right? So we're losing money in business, you know, money everywhere yeah, um, in productivity huge. just because we don't know how to have these tough conversations. And I think, like, yes, there's the tough yeah. conversations and a lot of it has to do with, you know, the, the head junk that we come up with in ourselves. You know, we see someone, we're like, oh, well, you know, they deliberately meant to drop yeah. in on me on my wave and they're just trying to, you know, um, be a buzzkill. Whereas I would encourage people these days to uh, put on their, especially in the water, this is a good analogy, put on their uh, generous assumption goggles. So essentially, you know, if we're giving people a generous assumption, we yeah, are assuming like that they are trying to do their best effort. They're trying to get along with people in the workplace. You know, no one comes to work wanting to start a fight. Very few people may want yeah. to, but, you know, as a norm, no one yeah. wants to have conflict at work. Uh, most people want to come to work and do a good yeah. job. Um, so if we start thinking from that perspective, when there's behaviour yeah. that's not acceptable, when there's performance that's not acceptable, usually there's a capability gap, as in they don't actually know how to do what they're expected yeah. to do. Uh, as a leader, there's an expectation gap. So what you thought they were going to do is not what they thought they were going to do, and there's that mismatch in expectations or perhaps they just don't yeah. actually know what they're meant to be doing as well. They're not clear on it. So, yes, courageous conversations, leaning into that tough stuff. But before you even get there, put your generous assumption goggles on and go, you know, if they were doing their best effort, which we're assuming they are because we're being generous with our assumptions, what could actually be going on for them? And more often than not, it'll be yeah. they don't know expectations or perhaps there's even something going on at home that they need a lot more support with as well. I like it. And I like the, um, the, you know, the, the idea of these sort of generous goggles that, that you put on, that it's one that you've kind of, you've named this sort of principle that you might apply and, and put into work, but also it's got this quite, um, you know, it's, it's something that's quite easy to visualize that, all right, you know, I'm coming in, I'm having a little bit of conflict. I'm not getting on with somebody. Perhaps I need a, you know, put these, <laughs> take my goggles out of their bag and put them on and, and see, you know, how I can see things from, from their shoes. I was just um, re-reading re actually To Kill uh, a Mockingbird, uh, the classic. Oh, and there's, yeah. a, there's a quote in there that it says that you, 
you don't um, you don't really understand somebody else um, until you basically get inside their skin, <laughs> which is which is to say that you know you are you're trying to see the world from their perspective, um, and I think it, it takes an act of generosity, um, an act of uh, kindness. Um, a deliberate act to to do that, uh, but often when we do that, we realize, I guess, that people, as you said, you know, just want very similar things to us. They want a a nice, enjoyable um, working environment. They want to do good work. Uh, everybody likes to um, see themselves improve, contribute, all of these sorts of things. So, no, I really, I really like the concept. And so, we're moving kind of into the, um, you know, what you're doing now in between um, the banking and I guess starting your own business and getting into this sort of full time, you were at the ABS, the Australian, was it Bureau of Statistics um, for a while. Yeah. Before we jump into what you're doing now, could you just highlight a little bit um, that part of your journey and, and I guess how it launched you really into, into entrepreneurship? Yeah, sure. That That is also a good question. So I was working in banking and finance, loved it, loved it, loved it, um, went through some massive change there, did some you know massive merger that happened in Australia. Very, very fun, um, but also led to me being completely burnt out. I think I le- uh, lived on, as, and I'm ashamed to say, it lived on Red Bull and Twisties for far too long, was working, you know, 60, 70, sometimes 80 hours a yeah. week. Uh, which was fine when there was a deadline. You'd be familiar with this. was fine when there was a deadline, but then the deadline would get extended. And before I knew it, I'd been working, you know, 60, 70 hours a week for nearly two years, I think. Totally unsustainable. Um, And I just was like, you know what, I I need out of here. And I was like, I'll go get a cushy government job and uh, found myself at the Bureau of Stats, which is up. (laughs) <laughs> I would say a culture shock when you've come from somewhere that was, you know, customer public facing, working with a team of women, uh, going into an office yeah. of a federal government agency. Uh, it was very, very different and I probably wasn't prepared for it, mm-hmm. but goodness me, my uh, burnout definitely loved it. Uh, not too long after I started there, I also actually uh, had a lot of babies. So had four babies in five years, which is as crazy and as nuts. Yep. As it sounds, but what I uh, I think what led into uh, creating Made for More and and starting my business was uh, not long after my fourth baby was born, there was a recruitment round happening at the Bureau of Stats, and what happens there is you kind of you put in an application and you get promoted yep. at a round. So the only way to get promoted is kind of by bulk bulk selection. And uh, I was updating my resume and I'd been, you know, throughout my ballet, I'd really been into personal development, banking and finance. I was like career driven, you know, next step, next step, promotion, promotion. Um, And I was updating my resume and I had, you know, my little, my little Eddie on my shoulder and he was a few weeks old and I'm like updating. I'm like, oh my God, I've got nothing to update in the last seven years. And I've gone, you know, down the spiral, down the gurgler. I've done nothing with my life. (laughs) Meanwhile, there's, you know, a tiny tribe of children, but that wasn't what I meant. And, uh, yeah. you know, I realized, I'm like, what am I doing? This is not at all what I thought, you know, when they talk about would young, per- would young Ali be proud of future Ali? And I'm like, no, no, this is not what I had planned. And I was standing there yeah. and I was getting quite emotional speaking to my husband, bless his cotton socks. And I'm like, yeah, I'm made for so much crying. I was ugly crying. There was snot. There was all sorts. Um, I'm made for so much more than this. You know, I can't believe that this is where I am. I don't want to be doing it. I want to be, you know, I want to be public speaking. I want to be writing a book. Yeah. I want to be working with people. I want to be, you know, leading um, and doing some really incredible stuff. And he's like looking at me, like, you know, very attractive, 
boogers coming out, blotchy, you know, covered in spit up, babies everywhere. <laughs> and he just goes to me, this isn't the end of your chapter, you know. And I'm like, oh, my gosh. And literally within, you know, a few days I'd started my business, Made for More, which is all around, you know, working with leaders, working with organisations uh, to build better leaders because I yep. think we need to do better as leaders. We're so influential um, in the way that people end up going home to their families, uh, having dinner around the table. Absolutely. I grew up, uh, my mum was a scientist, very, very cool, um, you know, scientist in the 70s and 80s, which is unusual for women back then, but also worked in a team of uh, men, also scientists, and yeah. just every night at the dinner table was a tough conversation that didn't happen in the workplace. And I think we need as leaders to make sure that that's not what's happening for our children around the dinner table. Um, you know, spend that time finding out what they do during the day. Yeah. Yeah. I like that. I think it was, um, I can't remember his last name, something like Leo Buscada. His name was Dr. Love or, or something like that. But, um, you know, similar to what you were saying around the meeting table or the dinner table before he, um, you know, I think he asked each of his children something that they'd learnt uh, each day as a, just a way, you know, a practice, something that they do habitually. But I liked it because it, you know, it focuses on, you know, it wasn't what outcome or what success or what achievement did you have during the day, these things that we can't necessarily control, but more about the inputs or the, the learning journey, et cetera, that you're, that you're having. But just trying to, I guess, by asking smart, deliberate questions, trying to improve the quality um, of the conversations. And, and obviously, as we described before, that's a, that's a key way that we can build stronger relationships, I guess, um, with our children, with um, our partners, with our employees. I know coaching um, versus a little bit different to say mentorship or management, etc. Coaching and leadership, um, a lot of that involves asking good questions because, you know, particularly smart people and particularly and really most people um, don't necessarily just want to be told what to do. They want to learn things for themselves. And so asking questions, how might you do this? Do you really think that all of these sorts of things I find something I've learned over the last few years as I've gotten into coaching, just how powerful, I guess, the right, the right questions can be. Yeah. Absolutely. Ask better questions, get better answers. And uh, it's pretty cool to be able to have those skills to be able to get some really cool answers. And uh, I love a good mind ninja that can really totally disrupt your thought pattern. You go, huh, I never thought about it from that perspective. Cool. No, awesome. And so, Ellie, you know, you mentioned kind of, it sounded like, was it, you know, you at the ABS for quite a long time. Was there, um, a, I guess, a, a prolonged period, you know, leading up to the tears and the, <laughs> the, the ugly crying or whatever you called it, um, was there quite a, a, a growing dissatisfaction over time leading up to that point? And how long do you think, um, you know, you were kind of getting signs, I guess, from intuition or internally um, that a change might be right for you in the, in the future? Oh, good question. Uh, I don't know. I don't know if there was actually like a dissatisfaction. I just think it was probably more uh, underutilization. You know, I developed all these skills very, very young um, and very early yeah. in my career that I wasn't really using. And it was okay because I was having a bunch yeah. of babies and needed to focus on that. And then when I finished having babies, I, it was kind of like this wake up that I'd just kind of gone through a time vortex. I'm like, oh, hang on. 
how am I still here? How did we get here? This needs to change. Um, And one, I guess one thing that I'm very good at is making stuff happen in a very short space of time. Um, You know, perhaps it's guts and determination. I'm not sure. Um, But I think I'd just forgotten that and whether or not it was in the, uh, the haze of sleep deprivation or pregnancy brain or a combination of all of those things that happened, I had just kind of forgot what it was, like what I was made to do and what I, you know, was very much made for more than what I was doing. So it was a very easy decision once I, I guess, once I came to the realisation that I had a choice to make the change that I wanted to see and be and do. Um, But I wouldn't say it was resentment. It was probably just I, I hit pause for a long time. Yeah, got you. And so it was kind of um, getting clarity, regaining clarity, I guess, on some of your aspirations. And I guess, I guess, deciding, you know, this is pretty good. It's it's comfortable. It's safe. Things are going all right. But um, you know, life is life is uh, you know, it's both long and short in many respects. And careers, you know, are relatively relatively long. Um, and there's you know, a lot of people have uh, lots of thoughts when they're thinking of making a career change or I'm. I'm too old or, you know, I don't deserve um, the kind of aspirations that I'm aiming for. I couldn't, couldn't possibly um, achieve that, et cetera. Um, and so therefore often, often we end up hiding um, from some of these aspirations. But I find if you get clarity on these things, you help people get clarity with them. And, and you know, if you're really good at making a lot of things happen in a short period of time, that's that's amazing and, and, and do that. But also um, realising that, you know, even if you're, 30, 40, you could still have another 20, 30 years at least, particularly these days of your career to go. And so it does help to to set these longer term aspirations and start moving things um, in the right direction. But it sounds like in your case, um, there was a, a decision um, and realization, as you said, that, uh, that there's a there's a choice, um, that whatever career we're currently in at the moment, um, you know, everybody is is smart and talented and have these skills and aspirations, et cetera, that change is, is always an option, I guess, no matter how hard it looks. And so your change was, as you said, one towards aspiration, one towards alignment. Um, did you look at other career options or was it very clear that, that you wanted to move into entrepreneurship and start doing these things that you said you want to do in terms of podcasting, um, authoring a book, et cetera? Oh, another good question. These are good, Cam. Uh, well, I've always known or I've always wanted to have my own business. I never knew what it was going to be or never knew what it was, used to look would look like eventually. Um, years ago, I started a invitation business like wedding stationery. Didn't work out because uh, I don't really love details, which is pretty important uh, yeah. part of wedding stationery. And then my background in change, I thought I would actually <laughs> end up doing uh, change management as a business. And again, that didn't uh, didn't tickle my fancy. It wasn't something that I was passionate about. Uh, but I've always known that I wanted to yeah. not be a trailblazer, but you know, create something that is going to be more impactful than being an employee, be more impactful, and have a greater reach than just the organisation that I worked for. Yeah. And I've always been quite aspirational, whether or not that's you know probably yeah. actually was seeded through all those years of dance and trying to continually improve and win and you know do amazing performances and um you know yeah really I guess do my best effort as we say uh so I've always known I just didn't know what it was going to be and now that I've landed in leadership um and exec coaching 
uh, speaking. I've always wanted to host yeah. a podcast and it was interesting. I was speaking to a friend of mine who's a videographer and he'd done some video for me and he was talking to me about it. I was like, oh, you know, I'd love to start a podcast. I said something about the EQ on our voices, like yours is lovely to listen to. And he's like, oh, no, you can definitely start a podcast. Just do it. And yeah. I was like, oh. Okay, I will. And then, you know, learn how to start a podcast similar to you, what you did. And then as a, I guess as a result of podcasting is you need to continually have topics that you're talking about, which then started unpacking all of this IP that I've collected over my, you know, 17 years of, um, yeah. of working with leaders. And before I knew it, there's a book coming, you know, book coming to fruition. I'm like, oh, okay, well, there's that, you know, that other thing that I always thought I was going to do and now it's happening. So it is interesting the things that we start, uh, I guess, calling in to our lives that we want to be doing. And then before you know it, it's a reality. It's very cool. No, awesome. Um, and you know, in terms of making the switch, uh, as you mentioned, you had, was it at least two kids by that stage when you when you, you started the move into entrepreneurship? You obviously had Four through, four. I guess, yeah. ballet, but also banking and then in the ABS, or four, four by then. Um you probably sounds like to me you had quite a high level of self belief, um, so that you you thought that as long as you clear on what you wanted to do, that you had the belief and I guess the support um, of your partner as well to to go after that, um, which meant that there wasn't there wasn't too much hesitation. Was was that the case in terms of entrepreneurship? Because I know a lot of people. Um, self-belief in that oh I couldn't you know couldn't possibly I've got four kids or I don't have the time etc um, or I don't think as I was mentioning before I don't think you know a podcast or a book I couldn't possibly uh, kind of do that was there a high level of self-belief um, as a I guess a uh, a common theme in your different career moves Whoa. I mean I think as an entrepreneur self-belief is something that we butt up against all the time, right? You, you know, new level, new devil, whatever it happens to be that you're going as you're leveling up yep. and, and delving deeper and deeper into this personal development like that. <laughs> space that you need to focus on when it comes to, um, you know, growing your own business. I think I've always had a self-belief as in my tenacity, like I get shit done essentially, like I'm very good at making things happen. Yeah. Um, and probably the self-belief, like I absolutely had some unwavering support from my husband, which I know not everyone has. And that definitely helps um, because he has seen me in action and knows that when I when I put my mind to something, that's what makes it happen. But I think when it comes to self-belief, one of the, and we talked about asking better questions, is, you know, I remember actually um, learning to drive, right, L-plates, L yep. and learning to drive a manual car. And I was horrible I'm talking I was thinking like I'm going to be the only person in the planet that can't <laughs> get their license and then I remember I was driving around I'm like well all of these people that I am seeing on the road right now have somehow managed to learn how to do this learn how to drive a car whether it's a manual whether it's not so if they have done it like I'm pretty clever she says I'm pretty clever I'm fairly sure I can figure it out and I, you know that was when I was 17 and I kind of took that attitude to business. I was lucky that I had a coach um, in business who worked with a whole bunch of other people that were starting and there was people that had started the year before and I could see yep. their success. And I'm like, well, if they've figured out how to do it, I'm smart enough to figure out how to do it. I'll just follow the bouncing ball. I'll follow the process. We'll carry on. I know that I know my stuff. I've been doing it yep. for long enough. So I had the self-belief 
from that perspective. Um, but for a very, very long time, it took me um, it took me ages to calibrate that what I knew versus being new to business didn't mean that I was new to leadership. So I guess meshing those two worlds together as in, yes, I'm new to business and need to understand how businesses run, how yep. to market yourself, how to, you know, figure out a CRM, how to do all of these other bits and pieces. But in terms of my content and what my yeah. expertise are, I've been doing that for years. So it took ages to mesh those together that being new in business didn't mean new in leadership and uh, I guess backing myself and recognising people around me. Yep. I'm surrounded by so many people, so many entrepreneurs that are doing it. And I think one of the interesting things when you're in this world of entrepreneurship is the people that are ahead of you that have you know walked the path before you are never going to give you a hard time about it because they've been yep. there before. So if you're taking your advice and following their their lead, um, their mentorship, if you're lucky enough to have that, they're always yep. going to be support you. It'll be the people that haven't yet taken the steps that you're doing that are going to be critical of it. So just being really aware of where you're getting your feedback from. Yeah, fan- fantastic. And you said getting the right mentorship, the right guidance, the right coaching, et cetera. So you're you're not reinventing the wheel when you don't have to. Obviously, in entrepreneurship, you're often plowing into new areas, and that's where it makes sense to invest the time in trial and error to, to new learn new things, create new IP, et cetera, but so many different things around the marketing and other areas. People have done that before and, you know, it's a it's an expensive way to learn to invest trial and error in those areas where people already know how to do those sort of things. So you want to, you know, if you want to get it successful as possible and, you you know, you want to make sure you leave enough time for your life and family, et cetera, um, you want to be really smart with where you're investing, your learning and how you're going about it. And so on a practical level then, how did you kind of figure out the balance between, I guess, the work and all this learning that you needed to do and pulling these different things together um, and supporting your clients, et cetera, and uh, balancing the family life. Yeah. So I think it took probably took me a little while in the beginning to learn um, the business basics because I hadn't actually been, I guess, in that world. I didn't have anyone else in my in my friendship group that were business owners. So learning about that was very much a, a deep dive. I did a lot of um, online courses. Had I had a coach who's incredible and really just getting clear about what it was that I wanted. Um, and then when that kind of became, you know, I understand, understood the lingo and knew what we're kind of talking about, you know, profit and loss statements and God knows what else. Um, but very, very basic things back then, but all are very much a learning a learning curve and when I kind of understood that then I understood the concept of what's going to move the needle so what do I need to do to move the needle in my business um, you know what is it that my people my clients are continually asking me for and that's sort of how courageous conversations came to be my my niche as in it was I was asked it almost yep. every day oh Ali I've got this tough conversation oh Ali I've got this toxic person oh Ali I've got this difficult personality I'm like, why do people not know how to have these conversations? I'm like, oh, because we don't actually ever teach that. So in terms of a practical sense, it, it took a really long time and then all of a sudden it was this like aha moment, yeah. okay, this is what people are looking for and needing and then it was just, okay, well, I know how to have conversations and then going how, like what is my formula? How do I, what's the framework that I follow and how do I do that? And once I started looking at that, the rest was pretty easy. 
Yeah, I got you. And so, who do you who do you focus on uh, serving in in your in your work, Ellie? And what what sort of services uh, do you offer? Oh, good good question. So, I work uh, mostly. I've kind of got two. I guess two people that I work with mostly is uh, leaders within corporate organisations. So, I'll go in and run a courageous leaders uh, program, yeah. a courageous conversations, depending on what that is. So, that's your corporate sector. And then uh, one of the perks of, you know, being an entrepreneur and having four children is yeah. I do tend to attract a lot of business owners, mostly women or, uh, you know, parents that are like, how do we juggle this work-life balance? And so I work with uh, business owners around running their life yep. like a CEO. So how do you manage work-life balance? How do you outsource the stuff that you need to do? Uh, for women, not sure if you're familiar with this term, Cam, you know, how do you share this mental load, um, which is, you know, 10x by the time you have a business? and and kids going here, then, and everywhere. So really, you know, leaders in the corporate that are leaders by title yeah. have been doing it for a while, probably have that corporate support. And then business owners slash business leaders that are looking to, you know, run their life like a CEO, scrub up their leadership. They might be an expert at uh, what it is that they're yeah. doing for their own business, but they lack those leadership skills. So that is who I work with. And so, you know, with the people that you've worked with, but also, I guess, now with the podcast, you're speaking to lots of leadership uh, specialists and experts as well. I know on your podcast, you kind of ask your leaders that you the interview and the specialists, what are their five sort of key principles? I'm wondering if I could actually, I know I haven't, haven't teed you up on this, but I'm wondering if I could throw it back at you and ask you um, if they're, you know, five key principles you know, ones that you've liked the most, the ones that are the most interesting or, or even ones that you think are the most um, important for people to learn. But do you have five uh, principles perhaps that you could you could share with, with the audience that they could um, potentially implement uh, to help them become a better leader and to help uh, their organisations and, you know, uh, the broader community as well? Oh, so good. You haven't, you haven't uh, prepared me for this. Uh, okay, so number one, I think we need to go with uh, generous assumption goggles. If you don't have a pair, pick yours up, pick yours up uh, because, you know, I think it is just such a beautiful place to come from, um, this place of assumption, assuming that people are trying to do the right thing. And it can be uh, in the workplace, it can be when you're driving down the, yep. down the street and you get cut off by some bozo. But if you're assuming that they're actually trying to do their best effort, then it puts a different a bit of a different flavor on it as well. So um, have your generous yep. assumption goggles. Yeah, so helpful. Uh, and I think uh, one, yeah, it gives a different essence and a different vibe to how it is that you show up with other people. Um, one of my favorite things when it comes to a courageous conversation and something that I think we lack is the idea to begin with the end in mind. So you know you're going to have to have a tough conversation. People are aware yep. it's because they feel sick. <laughs> they're sick and they're trying to run away from it. Um, but beginning with the end in yep. mind. So begin with the end in mind, sorry. So what is it that you actually want? Like what is the outcome that you want? What would be the perfect outcome um, yep. for you in this situation? And if that was to happen, reverse like engineer it. it and go, okay, well, what do we need to do? What do I need to ask for? What needs to change for me to get that outcome? Uh, I think, you know, this is just very, very uh, general around all areas that have helped me uh, get to where I am is that, you know, practice the art of meditation. I probably started seriously getting into it uh, last year and now it is a daily practice and uh, 
even my kids are like, oh, mummy hasn't done her meditation today. She'd best get to it. And it is such a, I guess, an integral yep. part for me. Um, <laughs> you would know this being in business, you've, you've got a busy mind. Like my mind is busy. We've got yep. this mental load um, as women, as mothers. Uh, I need time out for yeah, me to absolutely. just, you know, unplug a little bit with my brain. And um, it's definitely something that I think has kept my stress under control. Um, you know, even last year, of course, the whole world went through a pandemic, but being able to meditate and have that skill now that I will have for life uh, is something that I, you know, I notice it when I don't do it. So practicing something that's for you, for self-care every day, I'd highly recommend meditation if you have a busy brain. Yeah. Um, but yeah, practice, practice something for Leadership yourself. Leadership of self, really, I guess. Every day. <laughs> yeah, 100%. Um, and if you have a partner, um you know, being able to actually communicate around this thing called the mental load or life admin or whatever it is. And I think that's probably one of the keys to yep. my success, the the ability for me to be able to run a run a successful business, have a family of four, uh, four young boys, have a great relationship with my husband is actually this mental load. You know, I, I talk about communication. I communicate. I'm a big, big communicator mm. by default. Everyone around me is also um, big on communication yeah. and it's one of those things that I think uh, is such a simple thing to do. We just don't do it because it seems hard, uh, but being able to communicate what you need um, and what, what you want to get, what that is. So if, you know, if the mental load is a, a causing you stress in your house, then look at how you can actually share that, communicate that. One of the best things um, my husband and I ever did was this uh, shared calendar but more around uh, we have a we have a Sunday night meeting where we uh, yep. unpack all of the things, all of the the life admin that needs to happen over the week, and uh, figure out who's nice. doing what and who's going grocery shopping and what are we having for dinner. And it means that we're both on the same page uh, for that as well. And if I've got an early start, he knows he needs to pick up the slack. If he's got an early start, I need to pick up the slack. And it's made working. Um, not together, but like working, that's his chair there, working in the same um, office, a lot more bearable and it means that our kids get the best of us as well because it's not just one-sided. So what was that? That was around the mental load. So share your mental load. Yeah. Uh, if you don't have someone to share it with, just journal for goodness sakes. Um, and what is my last one? My last tip is, you know, just make communication such a big part of, you know, something, a skill that you can continually develop. There is, you know, there's um, so many podcasts out there that you can listen to. There's audio books. There's about to be the um, Courageous yep. Conversations book when it comes out. Stay tuned. Secret plug there. Um, you know, there is so much information. Just start practicing one piece of communication uh, right now. No, I really... I really like it, Ellie. I think covered some uh, some huge ones there. One thing that really resonates is the is the kind of leadership of self uh, piece through meditation and things like that. I think a lot of people might say, "Well, you know, I don't have much of an opportunity to lead others um, at the moment." But I've always found that, well, you know, the, I guess the first leadership challenge is leadership of self. Um, you know, managing your own mind, your own schedule, managing or leading, um, you know, the family as well, making sure everybody knows what they're doing at what time, all of these sort of things, um, and then building up from there. And I think um, I often suggest that to people is, you know, even if you're the, the bottom person in an organisation, to take that, 
that uh, ownership or leadership um, kind of perspective or goggles really put the leadership goggles on um, from day one so that you're thinking like the people above you. Um, and I find that that often leads to rather than people saying, well, you know, that's not my job or I'm not going to focus on this. You start seeing everything with more curious eyes. That, well, if I want to become a leader of this yeah. organization, I should learn to get good at this and understand this, etc. cetera. Um, so then over time, by taking, I guess, the leadership um, perspective, you will grow in terms of your responsibility. You'll be able to be responsible for more than just yourself. You start being responsible for others, for um, organizations. And, you know, as you rise to uh, entrepreneurship, then you start really becoming a leader, um, you know, as, as you're doing very much in terms of uh, not just the clients that you're serving, but the broader audience that you're communicating with through your podcast. And did I hear right? A book, is it, is it the uh, Rise of the Courageous Leader? Is that... Is that uh, um, It is coming soon. So, yeah, a couple of months away, but it is on its way for uh, for leaders who are Exciting. looking to be a little bit more courageous and uh, lead themselves is the first chapter. No, I'm excited to check it out, Alien. Just before we go, how can um, people best connect with you if they'd like to level up their leadership or if they know um, their organisation or another organisation could um, use a hand to take things to the next level in terms of their leadership? Yeah, awesome. Thank you. Uh, I hang out mostly on LinkedIn. Uh, love it. So you can find me, Ali Mitchke. It's spelled A-L-L-Y-N-I-T-S-C-H-K-E. Um, or check out the madeformore.com.au website and uh, see what we do there. Drop me a line if you need some help or curious or uh, want to talk about uh, mental load. Fantastic. Well, thanks, Ali. Thanks for sharing so much, sharing your journey and sharing um, a lot of the leadership wisdom that you've um, gathered along the way. Um, and just thanks so much for your time. I look forward to having you back on the podcast sometime soon. Amazing. Thank you so much. Uh, thanks for having me, Cam, and uh, congratulations on all the success of the incredible podcast. Can't wait for this one to go live. So there you have it, guys and girls. If you enjoyed this episode, then please subscribe to the podcast and head over to cam-miller.com to sign up for my free weekly growth guide email. If you're really loving the podcast, please also share it with family and friends and leave a review on iTunes or whichever platform you might be listening on. I can't wait to share the next episode with you.